Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have Robin Aguilar. Robin is a PhD candidate and NSF GRFP fellow in the Department of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington, studying satellite DNA and human genomes. They are passionate about community building, which includes the co-foundation of the Genome Sciences Association for the Inclusion of Marginalized Students that provides peer support and mentorship in genomics. Further, Robin also uses their platform to develop workshops, curricula, and art centered on storytelling and science and educational aspirations. Robin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. To begin with, we normally like to ask people, how did you get into science? Honestly, like when I was growing up, I didn't have necessarily a lot of like direct role models in STEM, but I was kind of always curious about like where I was living and like different things that were happening in my community. I was kind of always like, I guess you could say like a little bit of like a question asker. And I grew up in East Los Angeles as a reference too. So I would definitely say that like I kind of didn't get like a push that I could be good at science until I was maybe in like high school or so. I actually had like another science teacher who was also like a chemistry professor and she was like super super awesome and was like hey like you're pretty good at this stuff like you should honestly keep going and I feel like having a little bit of that like acknowledgement and also visibility um my teacher was also like an immigrant from Guatemala so having kind of like that role model there really helped shape and have someone say like hey I can also do this too you know absolutely how did you get interested in genomics then yeah, like that, that's a really interesting question. So like, for me, I, you know, like kind of like in high school, and like early on in your career, you're more likely to learn about like, just like, you know, general basic stuff like biochemistry, physics, like just big, like, you know, those big umbrella type fields. But when I was in college, um, I actually had this really great mentor, um, Dr. Dan Gernan, and he kind of like helped take me under his wing a little bit during like a summer internship and he was actually his lab like focused a little bit on doing rare disease research and it was kind of in this internship that I learned so much about like big data and how much information we just don't know about like human health and disease so that kind of led me into like this you know, relatively big area that is like genetics and like big data with uh, human genome research. Can I ask about what years this was? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So this was in probably like 2015, 2016. So like mm. what's kind of cool about that time period too is like a lot of people were kind of like getting into genome sequencing just because like the cost had dramatically decreased to be able to like sequence genomes in general. I was about to say because I started my master's in 2015 and it was in a phylogenetics lab which was using like whole genome sequencing because that was that was really the time period when people were starting to get into that more and more. Yeah and like I think there was like a like a lot of excitement kind of in that area and it was funny because like I kind of started off doing a little bit more like wet lab research like you know working with pipettes and chemicals and like actually doing the hands-on lab work and I kind of got like 
burnout from that. I was like, I don't know if I like this. Like, I kind of want to try to learn how to code. So I picked up coding by, honestly, like, this was, like, such a huge process. Like, I had, like, mentors who kind of worked with me, but then I most of it, you know, like, the way you learn coding is just, like, <laughs> stack overflow. I feel like going into biology, starting in a wet lab, and then ending up a coder tale as old as time. Yeah, yeah. And, like, now in my current research, I... I do both. Like, I have done a lot of code, but a lot of the stuff that I have to develop via code has to be tested in the lab by someone, and that someone is me. So, <laughs> no. Well, it's, this is a, a perfect segue to what is your current research on? Yeah, so right now, I would say that my main project is studying these hugely repetitive elements that are basically, like, DNA sequences that are repeated over and over and over again called satellite DNA. Typically when I talk about my research, I kind of like to pivot it actually as like, back in 2001, there was this huge paper that came out that said, hey everybody, we finished assembling the human genome. And that technically wasn't true, just because there were a lot of patches, like you can call them patches if you want to think of like, maybe the genome as like some type of quilt or something, that were just missing. like. All of the primary parts of the genome that, you know, code for genes that are considered active were there, but there were lots of patches. And the reason why there were patches that were missing was because those patches are really, really hard to actually map correctly because they're so repetitive. Like, they exist as these sequences over and over again. And functionally, we don't exactly know why they're there. Well, could we actually pivot a little bit? Because I think gene sequencing is something that I imagine a lot of people know about in a very vague way, but the actual methodology of how it's done might be pretty mysterious. Could you talk about how people actually, A, sequence DNA, and then also know what order things should go in? Sequencing DNA means that what you're trying to do is find the order of chem the chemical building blocks or DNA bases that make up a DNA molecule. So this sequence is able to tell us how a particular segment of DNA basically just is. Like if you were to take like the piece of DNA and stretch it out in a linear way, what is the order of those bases like A, T, C, G? as they exist. So that's kind of the idea of what sequencing is. What you're trying to do is you're trying to determine what specific elements exist in these stretches of DNA. So there are different technologies or tools that you can use. Like there are different sequencers and what you typically do is you have to take DNA out of a sample, so like, you know, some type of like cell or tissue and prepare a library. And this library contains tons of these little fragments of this large DNA sequence that you have. And what you want to do is take those individual fragments and make lots of copies of them. These samples then go into a sequencer. And th what this is able to do is then provide information about where these bases are located. Because most of the genome is like non-repetitive, we kind of have a sense of where to map and align all of the bases that more or less aren't repetitive with each other. But hmm. this challenge of being able to create a reference for something that, you know, is like a head to tail sequence, like ATCG, ATCG over and over again for like millions of copies, 
it's kind of hard to say. Does the ATCG first start to the far left, or like where where does this pattern start and stop, basically? So that's kind of why those bases that are so repetitive, at least in tandem, were really, really hard to map for a long time, just because the length of the reads that we're able to provide are too short to kind of determine uniqueness, if that makes sense. I think the reason why we were able to overcome this is because that technology for sequencing has just only gotten better in time. So now what we're able to do is do what they call long read sequencing, which it kind of, the name kind of alludes to it. We're able to just sequence longer reads of DNA at a time. And the reason why that kind of solved the problem is because what we're able to do is uniquely say, oh, like we can tell where this long sequence is unique and how it maps and where it maps in reference to all of the other components we have in the genome. Well, I think you referenced it before. So satellite DNA, these long repetitive sequences, and I think you indicated that they're non-coding regions. Right. So a lot of these satellite DNAs, like in terms of like structure function, they're commonly located at what we call the centromere of these like chromosomes, at least in the human genome. I mean, I think it, it might behoove us all to take a moment to talk about the physical structure of DNA and how it's packaged in the body. Can you walk us through sort of the stages of DNA organization? We kind of have, the, so we have this double helix of our four bases, A, T, C, and G. This double helix, essentially the string of DNA is wrapped around histones, which is then compacted into what you could call like chromatin fiber. And these types of fibers can be compacted into what we know as chromosomes. And then the centromere is? Yeah, and the centromere is basically just kind of like the middle piece of the chromosome. Um, it's kind of like looks like what holds the chromosomes together. So if we're imagining, invite everybody to imagine the image of a chromosome in their head where it's kind of like two wishbones stuck together at a center or maybe it's just an x yeah. is an easier way to think of it and then the centromere is at that sort of point of the x in the middle right it's right at the middle of the x and basically what it's used for is that region specifically is what's used to help assist the cell during cell division like that's what allows basically cell division to go on. So the, so maybe the idea is that the satellite DNA pieces at the centromere are so repetitive because they're not, they have a functional purpose, but it is more of a, a physical purpose rather than a coding purpose. And I think right now, a lot of folks are kind of exploring what that coding purpose is because we know a lot more about what it does functionally, I think, than I would say what it does, like, in terms of more of, like, the biology, because there's been a lot of work that's shown, like, oh, if you disrupt parts of the, like, centromere, you end up with just, like, poor cell division, or if there's a mutation or certain numbers of copies that are mess, um, left out or added, it's been shown to cause, like, different forms of, like, cancers. So I think there's still a lot about these regions that have more or less been missing from genome assemblies that are being let on. Like we're trying to really like kind of get to the bottom of what those repetitive DNA pieces are doing. Yeah. Well, and then that gets to kind of, I think there are large portions of DNA 
that are coding, but then there are also these huge expanses that are, as far as we know, non-coding, and by which we mean they don't get... So the... Just to just to go back to the central dogma, right? Of DNA is then um, translated into RNA, which then is exported out of the nucleus to the ribosome and converted into protein. Yeah. So then the central dogma. So then there, thus the question of why so many pieces of DNA that don't get directly translated into proteins in that way. It's it's just yeah. interesting. Like I think there's just a lot of like proteins that are around the centromere that we're still trying to like uncover like what is their actual function with like maintaining how this huge expanse of linear dna is packed into such a tiny nucleus in the lab that i'm in right now one thing that we're really focused on is kind of like the structure function relationships of how is dna packaged in the nucleus and how does its organization affect like correct or unstable genome function basically so essentially that, you know, these non-coding DNA segments may be structural. Right, yeah. Like, they could very well be playing a structural impact by just being in proximity to other interesting or relevant or biologically active uh, genomic sites. And one great way to do that is to be able to use imaging and microscopy, which is totally my jam. So... That's kind of a little bit more about what I'm doing in my research. I'm developing tools and technologies to specifically visualize satellite DNA so that way we can undertake these larger biological studies of like looking at these pieces of DNA that we've never really had access to the sequence before. So that's kind of like at the interface of a lot of cool biology stuff that's going to be happening. Well, could you could you talk more about what the like what the difficulties of imaging these sections of DNA are? Yeah, um, so I think one example is, so to make these repeats even more complicated, some of them between different chromosomes, at least in the human genome, are nearly identical. So say if you said, oh, I want to go specifically after chromosome A, I'm just going to give like, you know, some arbitrary letter. It might have the same sequences in that repeat as chromosome B. So guess what? You might target more than one chromosome, even though you only intended to target one. Hate it when that happens to me. Hate it when that happens, right? So like, it's actually very difficult to be able to uniquely tag and target these repeats because they share so much structure with so many other biological repeats that exist in the genome. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a solution to that problem, but the good news for me is that it's not my problem. Yeah, and like, it's it it was tough. It was definitely tough solving it because like, one of the tools that I've developed for imaging kind of does that. It like, overcomes that, but I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more, but that was definitely like, a huge bug that I had been working through in my research for at least a year. Yeah, well, I would love to, I would love to hear what the solution was. Yeah, so basically, um... I am currently in the process of like writing up a paper on this tool that I've developed called Tigerfish. And everybody always asks me, how did you come up with the name Tigerfish? And at the time when I was like first working on this project with my advisor, I thought about tandem repeats and I was like, okay, I want a letter that has a T and an R in it, tandem repeat. And then Tiger kind of just came out of that. 
and fish is the technique that we primarily use in our lab to be uh, to visualize genomic positions, which is it stands for fluorescence in situ hybridization. So tigerfish is kind of just how that name came to be. Well, could you describe just briefly what fish actually is, like what it's doing and how it does it? Yeah, absolutely. So fish is a uh, molecular biology technique that essentially it's honestly mostly used for cytogenetics, which basically what cytogenetics is, is a way to tag or paint chromosomes or genetic DNA. So the way fish works is you're using fluorescent probes that binds to specific parts of a nucleic acid or just a DNA sequence. And it does this with a high level of specificity. So if you imagine the way DNA bases bind in a complementary way, what you're doing is you're taking a probe, or in this case, we work with these small synthetically developed sequences called oligonucleotide probes, or we just call them oligos for short. And each of these oligos is tagged with this fluorescent marker or probe, and that way it will bind to our genomic region of interest. So when you go to the microscope, you look for that specific fluorophore, and it'll light up that uh, genomic region, so to speak. Tremendous. So you were using tigerfish to... Yeah, to basically tag a lot of these repeats and being able to tag them independently. So if I want to go after chromosome one, when I go to the scope room, I should only be seeing chromosome one. Mm -hmm. Has this, is this still sort of in working it out stage or is it at the point where other people are using your technique? Yeah, so we're actually at the really exciting point where literally on Friday I imaged my last two chromosomes that I had been debugging for so long. So I can say that I've officially imaged at least all of the chromosomes in the human genome independently. Wow. Hey. And we're starting to move into um, working with different types of samples. And um, we're hoping to be you know, publishing this pretty soon. So that way we can get it out there for other folks to use. And what's really exciting about the stuff that we're at is we used the latest version of the human genome. I kind of just want to give a shout out to other people's work here, but um, the Telomere to Telomere Consortium has done an enormous job of being able to implement that long read sequencing technology that I was mentioning earlier, but being able to apply it to finishing a full assembly of a human genome. I've been using that latest reference to actually design some of my repeat specific oligo probes. And what's really cool is I've actually found like new novel repeats, like different repeats that totally didn't exist in the previous version of the human genome. So I think there's a lot of really exciting space to be exploring for imaging and kind of looking at that structure function relationship and like, you know, high level. It sounds very, (laughs) it sounds thrilling. And that's not sarcasm. Yeah. (laughs) So you keep talking about the human genome. And like, frankly, I think humans biologically are among the least interesting. No offense to everybody collected and everybody else in the world. But come on, we all know that insects are the best, (laughs) obviously. Are there particular challenges to using this technology with humans versus other vertebrates versus invertebrates? I'm like so happy that you asked this because like so far I've actually um, implemented tigerfish on a couple other genomes too. So I've run this in mouse and fly as well. And fly was really interesting actually because I 
reached out to um, another person who does repeat biology and Drosophila. And what he was able to do was kind of give me this genome sequence that has additional patches of that repetitive DNA. Um, it's not necessarily like a linear, fully assembled sequence like what the Telomere to Telomere Consortium did, but this has a lot more of the repeat patches that were missing. And Tigerfish was able to find uh, repeat probes against the different chromosomes on fly, at least. So I'm hoping that maybe I have those stored and I'm like waiting for the right time to see if I can like try to image that or like work with somebody to kind of get a project off the ground in that area. Actually, that's a good question. How conserved, evolutionarily speaking, are these sorts of uh, satellite DNA sequences? Are they mostly a, a mammal thing or a human thing? Do you find them throughout, you know, the animal kingdom or even more beyond that? Oh my goodness, yeah, that's such a great question. So repetitive DNA is kind of all over the place between different organisms and species. So you see them in plants. Plants tend to have very repetitive genomes. I'm specifically thinking of maize, like corn. Like that genome is like pretty much like mostly repetitive DNA, I think. Between like, you know, vertebrates, like I would say in humans, humans tend to have like maybe like 10 to 15% of their genome is maybe like repetitive DNA. But this can also vary substantially between other mammals too. So even between like within species, one thing that's really interesting is that like in flies, there has been shown to be a lot of variation of just like satellite DNA content in general. But like, I think even between the sequence versus composition, there's still a lot of variability and differences. So that's kind of an interesting thing that I think a lot of folks are still trying to unpack. Like what what does this mean, I think, evolutionarily to have like so much or so little repetitive DNA? So what is the ultimate end use for the this kind of technology, this kind of looking at satellite DNA sequences? Like what kind of ultimate questions are the researchers who use it trying to answer about evolution or genetics, etc.? Yeah, sure. I could totally give you a few examples. So like this technology, I think, it's going to be helpful for a couple different emerging areas. One of them, I think, is maybe just validating genome assemblies as they're being made. So one area I can think of is that a lot of new genomes, now that we know that we have the technology to be able to assemble them telomere to telomere, so to speak. Like, Well, could we take a moment? What is a telomere? What is a telomere? A telomere is like the very, very tail end of a chromosome. Um, they're basically like the two far and left, left and right ends of chromosomes. And I think potentially people who are listening might have heard about telomeres because they're often invoked when people talk about aging and the, the deleterious effects of aging on the body, of the idea that every time DNA gets copied over, telomeres maybe get eroded a little bit. Right. So telomere to telomere. Yeah, so the idea is taking it a sequence or getting a sequence from one end to the other without any gap or, you know, decoy patches. And, and like what I mean by a decoy patch is kind of saying, hypothetically, we think 60 copies of this sequence is there. So like none of that. It's basically just a full, correct assembly of what's actually there on the chromosome. So I think being able to, there's going to be a lot of power in being able to use imaging techniques to say, hey, we have X many copies of some repetitive DNA sequence within this area of a centromere. Or um, we want to tag if this repeat is there on this chromosome. 
can we do it with imaging? And Tigerfish would be able to help users answer those questions. Another thing that this will be helpful for is just kind of stepping back and looking at some of these like biological questions like is this type of repeat present in certain forms of like cancers is like another area that I can think of. When it comes to studying evolution, I actually am going to kind of jump back to into flies a bit just because I think that's a good example. But there's been some really wonderful work where people have tried to map the presence of different satellite repeats in different species of Drosophila, which are just, you know, fly, but looking at different clades that exist within different parts of the world and seeing if they share some of those repeats or not. And it's been able to help people map what the evolutionary history is of, say, like the simulans clade, which is just a, uh, one of the Drosophila clades. Well, this example is the most exciting to me. because Essentially, you're saying that it's sort of a, a tool of getting very granular phylogenetic information based not just on similarity of genes overall, but specifically looking at the evolutionary informativeness of these particular satellite DNA sequences. Right. And I think like, that's kind of why I think like this tool, like I am interested in so many of these different directions, but obviously I can only chase a few. And the evolutionary stuff is like so fascinating to me just because I think seeing that relationship between how satellite DNAs might be driving speciation, it's just fascinating. Well, evolution is the best. (laughs) Come on. I think there's going to be a lot of exciting work to use this tool, especially to just like, yeah, do imaging and validations related to imaging. Karyotyping is another thing that I can think of where it's like, oh, if you want to check, yeah, between two individuals or in the genome, if like some type of repeat is there, what you could do is just take one of these sequences or these probes and just do fish on it and then see if like that lights up in your sample. Another thing that's really cool just as about these tigerfish probes in general is that like because we're going after repeats you actually typically only need a small handful or like maybe one to two probes to actually target a specific repeat just because there are so many copies it's basically like the probe will see it and be like wow there's like tons of binding sites here i can totally light this up so you end up more often than not with like really bright spots which looks super cool under the microscope well what is sort of best case scenario like what would be, what would be the day where you reach the mountaintop and you think, I've done it? Hmm. If that question makes any sense like, at all, <laughs> like related <laughs> to this project or in your life, but probably related to the project. Hmm. As okay, best. so I could say like related to the project. So I kind of have some plans after Tigerfish is fully like you know packaged up, deployed, where I'd like to make a community resource of like repetitive DNA. Um, oligos, not just for human, but for many model organisms, insects, like as a lot of these genomes are being completed, I'd love to just be able to like run my pipeline through different genomes and like have those probes there for people. So that way they can actually like use them in their own research as they want to validate, you know, whatever cool findings they get. I think that'd be really cool because currently as it exists, there's like no way or no good way to do this. Like I did find some prior repetitive DNA probes, but, like, I had to go to this paper, use the Wayback Machine, click on this, like, one website from this one lab in Italy that doesn't exist anymore to get, like, these, like, five sequences, and I was like, okay, like, I would love to be able to make a resource that could actually, like, help the research community get, like, more open access to 
better imaging protocols and stuff. So that would kind of be like my big pie in the sky dream, at least for this project. Hopefully, I'd love to be able to just like package that up before I graduate. Along those notes, like, is the stuff you're working on more focused on the computational aspect of it? Like actually programming, okay, here's this data, here's how we analyze it, or is it more in terms of like the actual lab procedures? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, I think the main focus of my thesis has been working on developing these computational tools. So I've been doing a lot of the software engineering and coding behind making these workflows exist. And the idea is that publicly, these sequences will be a resource that they can like use, drag and drop, download, and they can order from wherever they'd like to get their oligos from. And then they can do that those experiments in the lab. But because this is kind of like my method that I've been working on, like, I've, I've been finding, I'm like, okay, wait, when somebody finishes all this code, they're going to have to test these probes. Oh, that's me. I'm just mm. <laughs> looking in the mirror. So I <laughs> I have kind of had to pick up not just the coding hat, but also the me being in the lab doing the fish myself hat, which definitely an interesting pair of hats to juggle, but I've, on, I've enjoyed it so much. It's super cool to kind of see that story go from like start to finish. This is a wildly speculative question, so it's fine if you don't have an answer to it. But what do you imagine is sort of the next horizon after we've really nailed down genome sequencing? Like once we get to the point where we're like, we can get everybody's genome, no problem. What's next after that? Yeah, that is honestly such a fascinating area to talk about. So I know that there are lots of projects actually through, um, so this is just like, I only use this as an example just because this is a little bit more what I'm familiar with with like some of my research areas, but uh, the Human Pan Research Consortium is actually in the process of like trying to sequence more individuals because they're like, hey, obviously just having a single human reference is bad that doesn't exactly represent or account for diverse human populations there needs to be i think the next big horizon needs to be more specific work that understands and unpacks the ethics and ethical implications behind dna sequencing with specifically working with black and indigenous groups because i think right as a as it stands right now is like there needs to be substantially more work with education, understanding, and effectively collaborating with communities in research in that way. Like, I think, like, DNA sovereignty is kind of, like, it's going to be a huge area that a lot of folks should, like, be very informed about because, like, data and privacy related to genome sequencing, I think a lot of folks are still trying to, like, understand that as a whole but i think like as researchers in genomics like one thing that i definitely want to push for is just for like that continued self and current education about practices especially with dna sequencing like because i work more in tech dev like i am not necessarily in the assembly world or like putting these samples together but i think it's really important as a community to be extremely informed and like trying to advocate specifically for marginalized communities that are most impacted and most vulnerable. And I think that's a great 
Do you have anything else that you'd like to say about your like scientific research in particular that you haven't gotten to? Um, I would say, like, I think I touched upon, like, the main stuff with what I'm really excited to do. I'm honestly looking really forward to, like, collaborating and mentoring with, like, more students and getting them excited about imaging and tech dev. I think technology development and genomics is, like, it's super, super niche, but it's also a really, it's a ton of fun if you're, like, in the right environment and space. And I'm really, really excited to kind of work a little bit more in that, like, advocacy area with like developing curricula specifically about the ethics of work in genomics but also just being able to like be a person to that other students can kind of like rely on and just yeah learn to kind of love science with yeah well i think that's a great segue into if you'd like to talking more about your outside of the lab work both in supporting marginalized students and also in art and storytelling so I've had a lot of really exciting projects kind of in this direction lately that I, I'm i looking forward to kind of expanding on a little bit more. So like, I actually recently just got a cover accepted to ACS Bio, or Chemical Biology actually, for a really great series that they have called like the Diversity and Inclusion uh, cover series. But what they're doing is they're specifically uh, calling for artists from different diverse backgrounds and drawing covers for their each of their issues and I was actually able to get selected for one of these and was super excited because this is like my first illustration that's made it on like a journal cover that is very exciting then I don't know I've been really really hype about just like working more in scientific illustration and connecting with other people who are also illustrators because I think drawing and art is something that definitely drew me into science I think I'm like a very visual learner and a very visual person and sometimes like it's really cool to be able to put a story together that is um that's a little bit more accessible and easier to understand. Yeah, well, as you you put it in your bio, art centered on storytelling and science. Could you talk more about what that storytelling means? Right. So for me, I'm actually moving into studying and doing a little bit more work on like this is kind of gonna go hand in hand but like so I love graphic novels okay like I read comic books and like I love some manga series like Dragon Ball Z and stuff and it's funny but learning how to storyboard a comic is nearly like the same for storyboarding say like a scientific illustration like if you're putting together like a panel for like either a paper figure or doing like an infographic might be a little bit more like close it's that type of storyboarding is like super super common um and it's actually helped me put infographics together from start to finish just like kind of applying that idea and i am kind of hoping to actually move more into that space too and just like see what other fun infographics i can make about like repetitive dna or like how does sequencing work stuff like that well i think a visual approach is is particularly well suited to biology which is it's a very visual science in a lot. Of so as you said, you'd like to move more into the art side of things. What does that look like? Like how, what is the breadth of your ambitions? I would say that like when I started working more with illustration, like this honestly started with me putting research talks together. But honestly, like I think I started drawing more scientific illustrations like 
in like the margins of notes when I was like in classes still trying to figure out like okay but like what is happening in genetics really like what like (laughs) just like kind of reading through old papers and like looking at those notes like those little doodles really like helped me I realized learn more about the field so I was like oh you know I'm honestly gonna try to like implement drawing figures more as like a a style for uh, note taking or for my presentations just because I wanted at least to kind of have that like visual reference for myself just to make sure that I was even understanding what I was doing or communicating it correctly and that has really I think like taken off for me in terms of just like being able to like either help folks design figures being able to use like color schemes that make sense transitions that help maybe take that story of how did this project come about to where are you at now and what are you excited about doing in a way that's like a little bit more engaging and I think friendly. Like right now I'm kind of using this as a tool to help other people learn about my science as well as helping me make sure that like I'm also like working through my experiments in science correctly. And I'm hoping to kind of share maybe more stories than this after grad school too. Like I I would like to maybe have like a graphic novel someday um, about like maybe some of like my own experiences in STEM, but also just to do one for fun. I got a lot of cool story ideas that I would be excited about. Well, speaking about your own experiences, it, it, from your website at all, it seems like part of that storytelling is a talking about the science and about the biology itself, but also expanding sort of the image of people involved in science. Would you like to talk more about your work in sort of supporting marginalized students? So honestly, like I felt one of the biggest needs when at least I've been in science through undergrad and grad school has been, I think it's so important to have a community that is there for you. And I think especially for folks with marginalized identities, one thing that I can think of is that it's sometimes very, very isolating in STEM, especially in like PhD programs. Like I know that a lot of privileged folks typically from like upper class backgrounds are there. And a lot of the times, like if you come from a low income or first gen background, or due to a number of factors, this could be like your race, sexual orientation, gender, there can be a lot of situations where sometimes you feel like you're the only person in the room. And I think it's incredibly important to have that community there who not just like at least can empathize with your lived experiences, but also just uplift you as a person and just be like, you are totally like more than this PhD program and just seeing you authentically for who you are. So that's kind of been my goal with being an empathetic mentor and trying to carve spaces in science. Like I want to move away from just, you know, people just seeing you for like what you do outside of the lab or who they think you are. Like, I think I want to create spaces that are a little bit more like holistic and like actually is just like empathetic. So when I Mm. created GS Ames with uh, other students, we were very, very invested in wanting to make sure that not only did we have access to mentors who were representative or actually shared many more of our collective experiences or identities, but we wanted to have research role models, right? And people who we could network with, people who we could talk to and being able to develop the skills in community in a really unique way, I think is a powerful way to 
advocate for ourselves and also advocate for our needs as a community. Mm. It's so hard to kind of explain sometimes how wild academia can be unless you're just in it or unless you've experienced it for yourself. And like, I think being able to just even have that shared community of understanding and awareness is, it's huge. Okay, so did I send you the list of episode-ending questions? Yes. Do you have one that you would like to answer? Okay, maybe the time travel one. Okay, so if you could travel to any period of geologic time, when would you go? Okay, so this one is going to sound very random, but I had a friend recently travel and hike around and took some pictures of, like, the Burgess Shale, and I was like, you know... It would be cool to kind of see what Cambrian life would look like. It'd probably be a bit scary because they would look like bigger insect-ish type things kind of running around or in the water. But honestly, it would be kind of cool to see that. That would be true. Honestly? Yeah, I totally see the appeal of that. I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When is the Burgess Shale specifically It's in like the British Columbia area, but it just blew my mind. Like if you think about how much water there was on Earth at that time, and that's just like, I don't know, it'd be kind of cool to see different critters this is exciting because we haven't answered this one on the podcast yet you're the inaugural answerer of this question and i stand the cambrian period i was like i would because like she took some so my friend who went took some cool pictures of these fossils and i was like wonder what that would look like alive though Uh, i'm pretty cool i think yeah i would definitely i mean my answer is just going back to any time i could see giant insects like the like the like the really yeah. big ones let me see let me get a precise date on this one Ugh, looking at a fossil losing right. my mind Ugh, love that i would actually because the other time i would like to go is like sometime in the carboniferous to find because the 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 ideal for me is developing time travel but <laughs> only using it so that biologists and geologists, et cetera, et cetera, can go back in time and get contemporary samples mm-hmm. study. Because, like, we have fossil insects, but you can't, like, DNA extract right. those guys. So I would love to go back to the Carboniferous and, like, identify the rochoid ancestors of modern uh, Dictyoptera and, like, bring some back i just the most exciting possible thing i think tessa when would you go you know that's a little tough for me um probably either like the hadean or the edicarian just to see like what really early early life looked like i feel like my advisor would never forgive me if i didn't do something to shed light on the origin of life but also it might be cool to check out the mid tertiary ignium bright flare-up from a very long distance away for those of you who don't know that was when we had the most explosive volcanic eruptions as far as we know in the history of earth oh yeah i will say for anybody who's thinking about this in the future i will accept the far future as a period of geologic time like, way post-humanity on Earth. That's also acceptable. Ooh. I wouldn't go there, because I think it would bum I me out. I think it'd bum me out, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I will accept that as an answer, if anybody wants to answer this in the future. 
Ah, oh, tremendous. Okay. Well, I th- I think that's a that's a podcast episode. Great job, everybody. So, Robin, if people would like to learn more about you or your research, where should they look? Yeah, um, so feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I honestly haven't been on there too much these days, but I'm slowly making my way back as I'm, like, sharing more art and mentorship resources. I'm, I mean, it might be in your best interest to stay <laughs> yeah. off of Twitter. It's kind of a bummer there these days. TBH, yeah. <laughs> so, like, my handle is at csmallthings. It's just one word across, and you can find me on my website, uh, robinaguilar.com. Tremendous. Well, I am on Twitter uh, against my mom's recommendations, at Cockroach Arles and Tessa. I am on Twitter at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E, or on my website, TessaFisher.com. The show is on Twitter at ASAB Pod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And if you like the podcast or you think other people might like the podcast, please tell them about it. Uh, word of mouth is the number one way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing. <laughs>